Welcome to the Beatrice Institute podcast. I'm your host, Ryan McDermott. I'm a professor of English at the University of Pittsburgh and faculty director of the Beatrice Institute, an ecumenical learning and research community that supports advanced inquiry in the Christian intellectual and cultural traditions. Animated by intellectual friendship, inside and outside the academy, Beatrice Institute serves all who pursue the beautiful, the true, and the good. Hi, welcome. I'm Ryan McDermott, faculty director of the Beatrice Institute and associate professor of medieval literature and culture in the English department at the University of Pittsburgh. And joining me today is Dr. Elise Ryan, a scholar of early modern literature, a faculty fellow at the Beatrice Institute, who also teaches English in at the University of Pittsburgh. So welcome, Elise. Hi, Ryan. It's nice to see you. Yeah. So these are uncertain times. And for many of us, this is genuinely a crisis. Many are experiencing loss of income, illness, dislocation. Most of our students got uprooted from their dorms in the middle of the semester. Uh, grief over losing the end of the school year. I'm teaching a senior seminar and you know, my seniors just are not going to be able to have a graduation. Uh, and then, of course, illness. You know, I think many of us know people who have or have had or maybe have the coronavirus and even death. So you're a reader of poetry. What have you been reading these days? Well, I'm really not reading anything new. I'm going back to the things that I turn to over and over again in times of tribulation and sadness and confusion in my life. And so the first poem that I read a lot right now is Larry Levis's Anastasia and Sandman, which is a 20th century poem. Levis wrote it in the 90s. And I'm also reading a poem that is probably more familiar to most people, and that's Gerard Manley Hopkins's Carry and Comfort. Mm. Yeah, I haven't, I've never read the, the Levis poem. Could you just kind of maybe read the beginning so I can get a feel for it? Sure. I can give you the first four lines, which really will give you a sense of the imagery of the poem and its pacing, and also a little bit about the stance of the speaker. So it begins, the brow of a horse in that moment when the horse is drinking water so deeply it seems to inhale the water is holy. I refuse to explain. Those are the opening four lines. And the poem goes on to really explain. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Or not, right? Uh -huh. Uh -huh. <laughs> Explanation is overrated sometimes, I yeah. think. <laughs> but it goes on to meditate on the ways that violence and trauma can erase our sense of ourselves, uh, both our material reality and that existential sense that our experiences in the world are real, that they matter. Mm. So we'll have the full text of these poems in the show notes. So, and if you want to read along as we talk about these poems, you can pull those up in front of you. But, uh, and so the other poem, the Hopkins poem, can you tell me a little bit about that? Sure. Well, it's a sonnet, uh, which Hopkins is pretty well known for. The thing I love about Hopkins is he's a very loud poet. He makes use of a lot of poetic devices like alliteration. So you hear, it's a very aural experience. And the poem is itself meditating on what sounds like a dark night of the soul experience for the speaker is being pummeled by the divine in some ways. So as the title indicates, it's, it's dark. <laughs> 
Yeah, carrion comfort as in carrying the uh, rotting flesh. Yes, the rotting flesh that is also food for other creatures, which I think is important to remember that it's what makes it grotesque is also what makes it sustenance to certain creatures. Uh huh. And is this the one where he kind of uh, imagines himself as Jacob wrestling with God? I think he's alluding to that, but I don't think it's quite as straightforward. But okay. we can talk about yeah. that later. Where, as you started off and so eloquently described, we are living in a time that many people are compla- comparing to plague times, and you're a medievalist. So I'm wondering, what are the connections that you're starting to see between the poetry that you study and our current moment? Yeah, well, I mean, I think these these are plague times. And so for a medievalist like me, I immediately go to the Black Death, which was the first outbreak of the bubonic plague. And between 1347 and 1352, it wiped out roughly 40% of the population of Europe. Um, It started in the Caspian Sea Basin and moved west to the eastern Mediterranean and spread around the peripheries of the Mediterranean and then up to England and from England into northern Europe and then back east again (laughs) towards Russia. So it kind of just did this clockwise tour of of Europe and um, was absolutely devastating. So I'm, I imagine this is something you're some you, you know you're familiar with. But in 18 months in England, from 1348 to 1350, about 40 percent of the population died, and that was even that was even higher in certain demographics, up to 60 percent. Those numbers they're astonishing, <laughs> they're overwhelming, and I know there was a a huge cultural impact from this. How could there not be? We have to make sense of these things. So. What it, what is that cultural impact? What what are some of the forms of art that come out of this plague? Yeah, well, so you know the the one that I that I think is most prominent that you kind of learn about you know if you're in a history class and you learn about the bubonic plague is is the dance of death and you know even even the um, ring around the rosy like this is a dance of death but there's this whole cycle of artistic imagery visual imagery and um, and poetry based around the stance of death. But the thing that really gets me about it is that the first evidence that we have of this dance of death cycle is nearly two generations after the Black Death. Now, partly this is because the bubonic plague didn't just go away. It actually returned to Europe in about 30 waves over 200 years. So, I mean, plague remained, remained with us. But, but I think also partly is just that uh, the responses are belated. Right, right. I think that's really important. When you're going through crisis, it's difficult, if not impossible, to articulate in the moment what is happening to you. And I see a lot of resonance with my poems that I wanted to discuss today because both Anastasia and Sandman and Carrie and Comfort published posthumously. In Levis's case, he died unexpectedly before he could bring his poems into a collection. So his friend, Philip Levine, brought them together into the collection that we now have that's called Elegy. But both poems also speak to prior traumas. The Levis poem uses Stalin's reign as a way of thinking through these existential crises. 
And as we already discussed a bit, the Hopkins is referring back to a prior moment in his life when he was experiencing what really could be described as despair and is identified as despair in the poem. Yeah. So it seems like the poetry of trauma is always coming too late. Like it comes a lifetime later. And um, so let me read to you from Lydgate's Dance of Death. Or actually, maybe let me just show you first some images. So yeah, so you've put this up on the screen. Uh, What are you seeing here? Well, this is the book, right? An old book here with skeletons moving people along. I see a king. I see a religious figure. uh, And I see the poetry beneath the image here, kind of almost as if it's two columns supporting this image of skeletons moving enfleshed people along. Yeah, right. So these images uh, that we're looking at here, I mean, this is actually a printed book. And this book was printed in 1485 um, in Paris. But but what, what it is, is it's the, these are the only, these images were copies of a cycle, a mural cycle in a crypt in in Paris that it that no longer survives. Um, so this is the only evidence we have of that of that first cycle of imagery that, as far as we know, is kind of the the beginning of the the art historical history of the the Dance of Death. And so this was made in the first quarter of the 15th century, so maybe 50, 60 years after the end of the Black Death. And the mural, so it's accompanied by a poem, and the poem tells how death approaches people in various walks of life and calls them to death. So each person gets two stanzas. One stanza is death's address to that person, and the other stanza is the person's response. So it's a dramatic poem, and that's why it lends itself to illustration. And these are really striking illustrations. I mean, the the skeletons almost seem happy. They have that kind of, that smile that <laughs> our skulls have stripped of our, our flesh. And they do appear to be dancing. The one is kind of lifting his knee up. They're kind of grabbing people by the elbow uh, as they move them in and out of the frame of the the text of the book. Yeah. And, you know, so what we're looking at right now is, well, if you go back, it sort of, it it begins with the Pope. We actually don't have that image. That's, that's, that first page is lost. So the death comes first to the Pope, which is interesting, uh, then to the Cardinal and then to the King. And it kind of moves down the social scale from there. So death comes here to a professor and a middle-class businessman. But I think what's what, what's interesting here is that like one of the skeletons, he has a cloak on, you know, like it's still like he's kind of like he was once living. You kind of get the sense. And he even has a shovel and we're going to see later on, well, not in the images I have here, but, you know, there's a, there's a laborer with a shovel. And so there's kind of the sense that it's a personified death, but it's also like people you knew who are coming and like drawing you back to to uh, where they're coming from. So intimate. Yeah, right. They're reaching out and touching you. Yeah. So here death comes to the abbess. Death comes to the usurer and the poor man. And that's that's a really fascinating little image right there because you've got a richly dressed 
man with a purse and he is putting coins into the hand of a partially kneeling, you know, uh, rattly dressed poor man who's kind of in a has a facial expression of abjection. Yes. I'm glad you used that word abjection because I think that will come up later in my poems too. And I think that sense of being laid out and and prone and reduced in these moments is clearly coming forward in these imageries. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, it moves along. There are in this version, a total of think about 30 characters from various stations of life. Here we have a physician looking at a vial of piss, uh, which is <laughs> which is how we did epidemiology uh, in the 14th century, and the uh, an amorous lover. And then uh, death even comes to the baby in a crib. This one is particularly poignant because it is very difficult for us to imagine death at all, full stop but to be forced to imagine that it takes the most vulnerable, the poor man and the child, uh, that it has no discrimination is, is cruel and it's heartbreaking. Yeah, and that, I, I think that's one of the central points of, of these cycles, which actually, depending on the cycle, I've looked at a bunch of them, they have, they have a bunch of different characters. Like They don't all share the same characters. And, and the point is that you know, there's no discrimination, like death comes comes to everybody. So in 1426, the English poet John Lidgett was in Paris, and he encountered this mural and the poem on the ossuary wall of uh, the Holy Innocent Cemetery. And he was inspired to translate the poem into English. And then uh, uh, another mural of the cycle imagery was commissioned for St. Paul Cathedral in the crypt there. And so Lidgett's English version of the poem accompanies those images. That's also lost, unfortunately, uh, that mural cycle. What we do have in a couple of copies is Lidgett's poem. And Lidgett very freely adapts the French original. He adds five prefatory stanzas. Uh, We're seeing the beginning of that here in uh, manuscript of the Hunt- Huntington Library. And so tell us what, you're, what, what what we're seeing here. So I'm seeing the manuscript. I'm seeing the colored capitals. And then I moved on to the next slide with the two stanzas uh, where death is coming for the amorous gentlewoman. So I see the opening lines of death calling out to her and his capital is in blue. And then her response, her stanza of response to death, her capital is in red. And those two primary colors, cold, death, a warm life, uh, we associate them already still with these ideas of death and heart's blood and, and vivaciousness in life. And I think it's really beautiful the way that the person who wrote this incorporated the sense of color imagery onto the page. Yeah, I hadn't seen that. So right here it's saying death is uh, coming to the amorous gentlewoman. I'll read, I'll read uh, maybe a couple of the, the two stanzas in Middle English and then Great. Uh, we can look at So death says, Come forth, my stress of Yairus young and grain, which hold yourself of beauty sovereign, as far as ye was some team polisane, Penelope and Queen Elaine. Yet on this dance, thy went in both twine, and so shall ye for all your strangeness. 
doch Daunger, long in Louvre hath lad you reign, arrested is your change of Dublinos. And then she responds, Oh, cruel death that sparest non astat to old and young, thou art indifferent to me beauté, thou hast decide check mot. So hasty is the mortal judgment, for in me youth this was mean and untaunt, to me service many a man to allured, but she is folly shortly in sentiment that in her beauty is too much assured. That's beautiful. Thank you. So, you know, this is one of my favorite because we see the beautiful woman. I mean, I don't think that this engraving is actually showing a very beautiful woman, but uh, we're supposed to think think of that. And she's supposed to look young, you know, she's young, she's beautiful, uh, in the flower of youth, and death says, checkmate. Right. I love that line, checkmate. <laughs> it's so playful. It's death is dancing, uh, checkmate, I beat you at this game. Uh, the gaming dynamic is fascinating to me. Yeah, and 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 uh, you know what this is alluding to is a, a bunch of different versions of of a poem that's uh, that's an allegory of love, according to chess. So it's the chess of love, and that's what she's well, of course. Playing. Yeah, as an early modernist, I feel compelled to remind us all that uh, Miranda and Ferdinand are caught playing chess once they finally get together <laughs> in the Tempest. So it's a it's a long it, that trope has a long history. So <laughs> yeah, yep, yeah. So what gets me here though is that I mean, there's some variation in these stanzas in these characters, but you know. This is one of the most unique of the stanzas. Most of them use share a lot of the same rhyme words, and the same thing happens over and over and over again. You know, and as we saw in the imagery, you know, there's some variation in in dress, but in posture, but like the images are fairly similar. In fact, I was looking through a, a book of hours that has the dance of death in miniatures in the in the margins. And as I was looking through the thumbnails of the the images last night, like I couldn't even tell the difference between each of the images until I like really zoomed in because it's basically the same thing over and over and over again. And so one of the things that things that gets me about this is that you know in people who study trauma and the experience of trauma and post traumatic stress disorder note that one characteristic of the traumatic experience and the processing of trauma is repetition. There is repetition happens in lieu of coherent narrative. And so this seems to me to evince a response to iterative pattern that's just an experience of the iterative, like the repeated pattern of people dying. Um, And it just happens again and again and again. You can kind of become inured to it. And that's that's somehow a way in in this poetry and in the imagery to work through that trauma. Right. Well, I think that's one thing that poetry can give us at a moment like this. Lyric poetry in particular isn't necessarily concerned with a clear narrative arc. You know, you and I were joking earlier with that line from Levis, I refuse to explain. And then I, I said, you know, explanation is overrated. And sometimes it is. Sometimes we can't always explain in terms of cause and effect or point A to point B to point C. And 
what you're discussing with trauma, it's iterative capacity, that repetition or repetition with a difference is sometimes the way we talk about it. It comes together in a way in poetry and poetry's formal devices can sometimes get at that in a way that our drive toward being rational can't always do. Yeah. And, you know, there's a great, I, uh, I read a, an excellent article on, on Lydgate's Dance of Death from 2015 by a scholar named R.D. Perry that looks at not only the trauma of plague, but especially the trauma of wartime and, and, and points out that Lydgate is writing his poem in the midst of the Hundred Years' War. And he's in Paris because he's there with the conquering occupation army of England. So there's, you know, there's, there's this sense that it's hard to make narrative out of death, out of trauma, out of wartime. And so uh, what you get instead is a kind of repetition. Right. I am thinking about repetition. I'm really moved by the ways in which Lydgate was writing this poem to images, which I, that's something I think about a lot. But we don't have those images anymore, as you said. The, the what he saw in Paris and then what was supposed to be uh, in England are not lost to us, and that tension between what is lost and unrecoverable and that which survives that really vibrates. That's really where we are. That's where we live between managing our losses and sometimes managing to survive them, nonetheless. And if you're comfortable with it, this might be a good leap into Levis, actually. Okay. He's very concerned with this issue of what is real, how do things stop being real, and what, do, what starts to happen when the losses start to erode our sense of reality and how do we survive. So I was hoping that you might read the stanza before the break here. This is about 20 lines after the opening that I recited earlier, but I think it's a turning point in the poem. Ooh, I love that image too. That's really beautiful. Yes, this is a great love of mine, Franz Marc, who was Kandinsky's friend. And he and Kandinsky and Gabriel Munter started a group called Der Blau Reiter, the Blue Rider group. It was an artist collective, but yeah. So this is a, it looks like a, a print, a wood print of... Um, horses at rest, um, uh, one horse taking up the center of the frame, and then three others kind of in the margins around him with washes of blue and green. Okay, so from Anastasia and the Sandman. In Romania, after the war, Stalin confiscated the horses that had been used to work the fields. You won't need horses now, Stalin said, cupping his hand to his ear. Can't you hear the tractors coming in the distance? I hear them already. Thank you. I think this is one of the most terrifying gestures of poetry. Stalin cupping his hand to the ear, listening for these tractors. And of course, he's, he's lying to people. He's telling them what he's going to force them to do. And this is referring to Stalin's forced agricultural collectivization that he did throughout Russia and the satellites of Russia, the Soviet Union, between 1929 and 1933. Right. And that, that was disastrous. I mean, it, it was, I think, the largest uh, famine in human history prior to Mao. Right. And it was a largely engineered famine. 
And the Politburo's official line was that everything was fine, everybody was happy. And when it got so bad that even they could not deny the, the mass of death and loss of crops and creaturely life, all the animals that died as well, they started blaming it on a class of peasants who owned their own land. Um, they're, they're referred to as kulaks. And so he also created a lot of class warfare at that time too. And this moment, it really does something destructive to our imaginations. Uh, I'm sure you know the philosopher Hannah Arendt, and she has a great essay on lying in politics. And she's really concerned, as she often is, between this tension between contemplation and action and how we move toward action. And she says that our imaginations can't always hold everything. So we have to kind of move things or destroy things to make room for something new. And what a lie does is it it's the bad kind of destruction. It does this thing which this poem is also trying to do. It erodes a sense of truth, a sense of reality. And I'm wondering, could you read the next stanza here after the break? Yeah. And the horses were led into boxcars and emerged as the dimly remembered meals of flesh that fed the starving poles during that famine and part of the next one, in which even words grew thin and transparent, like the pale wings of ants that flew out of the oldest houses. And slowly, what had been real in words began to be replaced by what was not real, by the not exactly real. What do you think of that? <laughs> oh, I mean, it's so, so they're taking away the horses. And these were the horses that in the past had been able to feed people during starving times during famine, sort of the meat of last resort. But they're they're being, you know, taken away by Stalin. And in this famine, without the horses to eat, even the words grew thin. So even the words are starving. And they're they're being they're starving because they're being stripped of of reality. Is that kind of what's going on? I think so. I think that's a great reading of it. And what this portion of the poem does, this is all one sentence. Everything that you read, it's nine lines, but it's all one sentence. So it sinuously wends its way from those horses who were flesh and went into boxcars to them being a meal, to then words, as you said, starving. And by the pileup of similes, and then for those who might not be able to see this text, Levis uses the ampersand a lot in this poem, as well as the word and. And that difference, what difference does it make to see the symbol versus the word itself? It's almost as if the word is getting starved down to its symbolic weight, its pure signification at this point. And so the poetry formally does this thing which is so difficult for us as human beings. When somebody is telling you that your reality is not real, when somebody is telling you that what you're experiencing or what your loved ones are experiencing isn't that bad or just get over it, the ground opens up underneath you because how are you supposed to articulate what's real when that very category has been stripped from you? And the poem is showing us the terror of that in that one long kind of seductive sentence. So this isn't the end of the poem, right? <laughs> no, it's not the is end there, of the poem. <laughs> is, there, is there any like hope or consolation here? Yes, yeah. And how about, could you read again uh, the 
part I have here before the break on the next slide. So the death of Stalin and the slow, uninterrupted evolution of the horse, a species no one, not even Stalin, could extinguish, almost as if what could not be altered was something noble in the look of its face, something incapable of treachery. Yeah. It's really hard for me to hear these lines and not get emotional. Yeah. Have you spent any time with horses? (laughs) I have have not, but I mean, you put this image, I assume this is Larry Levis here with his dog. With his dog. And I, you know, I have spent time with dogs (laughs) and I think maybe something similar could be said of dogs and their faces, that there's something like they're incapable of treachery. Right. That noble in the look of its face, something incapable of treachery. That's a line to keep with you as a mantra, or at least I do. And this perseverance of the horse, a perseverance that is silent and witnessing. And this, I think, is the hopeful thing. You would ask me, is there hope? Is this where the poem ends? If it's so tough for us in moments of trauma and chaos, like right now, to really articulate our reality, what we need to do is witness to it. And we need people who will witness for us, who will say yes, who will affirm what is happening around us so that we can carry forth, we can evolve. I really like the way that horses are used metaphorically throughout this poem, but they're also very materially real. They have a biological history. They have evolved. And even Stalin, with all of his cruelty and his ego, his perverse sentimentality, could not destroy the horse. And if Stalin couldn't destroy a horse, then you have a chance to. Uh, and somebody's out there witnessing for you. And I wonder, you know, are you curious why the poem is called Anastasia and Sandman? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Okay. My daughter's so name know, is Anastasia. It's a beautiful name. It's a beautiful name. And it also means resurrection. It does. Thank you. Yes, it does mean resurrection. So can I read the last stanza? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. This is this is the true end of the poem. And besides, behind the angel hissing in its mist is a gate that leads only into another field, another outcropping of stones and withered grass, where a horse named Sandman and a horse named Anastasia used to stand at the fence and watch the traffic pass, where there were outdoor concerts once in summer under the missing and innumerable stars. So they're horses. (laughs) That's literally what they are. And it sounds like here we're not in Russia anymore. Right. Like we're in Larry Levis's town or something. And we are, in fact. This poem and many poems from the collection are really situated in Central Valley, California. And these two horses, along with other horses, show up in other poems. And he's also, therefore, reliving parts of his childhood. And he brings in the plight of migrant workers uh, in many of his poems. So he's trying to weave together a sense of what his life once was, how history overlaps with that, to use a word that I know as a medievalist, you'll know the palimpsests of history, the layering and like looking down through things. Uh, He's bringing all of these things together in this poem. It's 110 lines uh, and it's magnificently paced, in my opinion. (laughs) So, And so so this this is a memory of like of some like field of a farm where there were these horses that he knew 
and they used to stand at the fence and watch the traffic pass. So it's it's not like a it's kind of an urban farm in a way. And then maybe at some point the horses were no longer there and then there were outdoor concerts in that place or maybe at the same time. But they're not there anymore. The concerts are gone, the horses are gone, even the stars are now missing. Yes, yes. And I think that this goes all the way back to where we started with this idea of belatedness and that when we look back, you know, in this, Walter Benjamin has this phrase, the angel of history with everything blowing back. We look back over this detritus of the past, we see this profound layering up of things. And I think that this idea of the past and memory And we talked about repetition in trauma, but memory is also a part of trauma. I think it's really apt for Hopkins as well, if we could move on to that poem. I have up on the slide for us the entirety of the poem, Carry and Comfort. It's 14 lines. I could put the whole thing there. And that guy on the left (laughs) is none other than Gerard Manley Hopkins looking so serious uh, with his hooded eyes. (laughs) That's how I always see him uh, with those hooded eyes. So how should we handle this? Because this is, Hopkins is dense. This is a sonnet. Sonnets, the, you know, even the easiest sonnets are complex, tightly sprung machines. And this, this one especially is, is difficult. And, and it's, uh, I think, difficult. It's wonderful to hear, difficult to understand while hearing. So, like, could you just read it and we'll just bask in the sound of it first and then we can sure. dig into it that's my favorite way to experience hopkins so yeah i will read it and i'll try to really emphasize uh the brutality of this okay all right okay okay carry and comfort not i'll not carry and comfort despair not feast on thee not untwist slack they may be these last strands of man in me or most weary, cry, I can no more. I can. Can something? Hope. Wish day come, not choose not to be. But, ah, but, oh, thou terrible, why wouldst thou rude on me, thy ring world, right foot rock, lay a lion limb against me. Scan with darksome devouring eyes my bruised bones. And fan, oh, in turns of tempest, me heaped here, me frantic to avoid thee and flee. Why, that my chaff might fly, my grain lie sheer and clear? Nay, in all that toil, that coil, since, seems, I kissed the rod, hand rather, my heart Lo, lapped strength, stole joy, would laugh, cheer. Cheer whom, though? The hero whose heaven-handling flung me, foot-trod me? Or me that fought him? Oh, which one? Is it each one? That night, that year of now done darkness, I, wretch, lay wrestling with my God, my God. Amazing wow. poem. Thanks. You read it very well, too. Thanks. Oh, thank you. You know, I really think sometimes the sound is the meaning. 
I've taught this poem before and I get really into it in the classroom <laughs> and then there's silence. And I think the desire is, well, what, what, what was that about? Lay a lion limb against me? What does that even mean? But it actually sounds beautiful. L is a, a voiced consonant, which means we have to use our vocal cords to make the sound, which is what we also do when we sing. So even though he seems to be describing here a paw of a lion swatting someone down, how lovely it is to say it. So the aural qualities of this poem reinforce, undermine, and frankly give a kind of delight that is really hard to find in the meaning of this poem. What do yeah. you think? Yeah, and and a kind of terror. And <laughs> I think I, I think Hopkins is kind of at his best when he's alliterating on R sounds. Yeah. <laughs> R sounds with some kind of hard consonant mixed in. So, you know, but ah, but oh thou terrible, why wouldst thou rude on me thy ring world right foot rock? Right, right. Yeah. What do you think a ring world right foot rock is? <laughs> well, it's very, it's very, very compressed. So he's addressing something terrible oh thou terrible and why would you rude on me i'm not sure exactly how rude is being used as like a transitive verb there but it's i think so yeah i guess be be rough to me no actually no unleash roughly on me your your right foot like a rock that rings that can ring the world like a like a kitchen towel. Right. Yes. Is that how it's working? I think so. And notice how the syntax is so twisted. We really had to parse out, like think carefully about the placement of the words, the parts of speech, the grammar, all of that entanglement. If we go back up to that second line of the poem, not untwist. That's his statement of strength there, that he's not going to untwist slack they may be, these last strands of man and me. There's something about being twisted up and yeah, being and, bound. And this is very twisted up. And now as yeah. I look on it further, I'm realizing <laughs> rude is probably not a verb. It's an adverb. Why would you rudely, and the Thou. verb here is rock. Why would you rudely rock your right foot on me, your right foot that can ring the world, W-R-I-N-G. Right, right. And, you know, you had mentioned earlier about, is this about Jacob wrestling with the angel? Well, clearly there's a lot of wrestling here. Clearly he's alluding to the story. Gerard Manley Hopkins uh, was a Jesuit priest. He would have known that story, certainly. But that story of Jacob wrestling with the angel is almost too people, not people, one divine, one person coming together, but they're evenly matched in the biblical story. They wrestle together all night. One never really gets the better of the other. In this poem, you used also the word abject earlier. This speaker is abject. That That's, so lay a lion limb against me, scan. That line is in jam. Scan is the last word of that line. And in jam, it means the, the sense carries over to the next line. So there's no punctuation there. And I love that moment because that word scan, it almost feels like some creature took a running leap off a precipice. 
And the white space there is the void over which it's flying. And that thing is looking for you. <laughs> You're the carrion. It's it's coming after there. It's it, it's terrifying. It's a terrifying poem. <laughs> and I mean, I think what's also happening here is that Hopkins is identifying himself with his poem. So the last strands of man that he describes, slack though they may be, not untwist the last strands of man, slack though they may be. Slack is is a term that he uses in his own eccentric metrical system. And and then here again, scan. So we have this kind of predator figure scanning, scanning his bruised bones, but scanning is what uh, we do as readers of poetry when we try to analyze the metrics of of the poem. Exactly. Why? I'm so glad you. Why? <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, I think this is really important. I'm so glad you brought up both Slack and Scan here. And no coincidence, they also have that s- sound, which can be very soothing, but also harrowing, like a snake. And I think. You know, some people think that going to poetry in times of crisis is escapism. I hope that we've already kind of revised that narrative. But I think sometimes people go to poetry because it might save their life. And sometimes poetry doesn't save your life. Sometimes poetry is the thing that is both drowning you and it's the only thing that you can hold on to, to make sense. And when Hopkins himself became a Roman Catholic and was ordained a priest, he burned all of his earlier poetry. Writing poetry for him wasn't an ease of conscious conscience, excuse me, it wasn't always a comfort, and yet it was a compulsion. It was something that he had to do. And his poems weren't published during his lifetime largely because he was inventing his own metrical systems. And this is a sonnet, as we said, but he's also known for what's called a curdle sonnet. He's, he took off Two lines, basically, um, is the easiest way to explain it. So it's not 14 lines. So he was kind of uninterested in playing nice with the forms and yet using them to his own means and his what he required. Yeah. So, so I guess I'm still wondering, why <laughs> is he identifying himself with the poem? I mean, and I, you know, because it's a sonnet, I, you know, I think we look for the answer in the last part of it. Right, exactly. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And he even, which even begins here, why? So the last six lines. So what's happening at the turn? We've got the the octet at the beginning, and then we've got this, you know, a space, a gap, and then it begins why, and we have the remaining six lines. Right. I think you're right. That turn, the volta there in the sonnet, it does kind of, bring us into a new relationship. And I think what's important here, look at all the questions. So it begins with the question, why? But then he says that he did these things so that the chaff, the parts of the grain that aren't suitable might fly away. That That God did these things? That my chaff, that he chose to serve in this way, me frantic to avoid thee and flee. Why? That my chaff might fly. Oh, might flee. So fly meaning flee. Right. That's how I'm reading it. Yeah. 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 And that the grain would lie sheer and clear. And then he seems to go be going back and forth in the toil and the coil. But then he comes to this point where he thinks there's going to be joy, but then he stops himself and he asks, 
Cheer whom, though? The hero whose heaven-handling flung me, foot-trod me? Or me that fought him? Oh, which one? Is it each one? And I don't know about you, but this is where I get confused every time in the poem because there's several me's here and there's several heroes or whom's or that other that's giving the beating more often than not. And that question, is it each one? Is it each one at the same time? How is it possible to be a me that was beat and a me that fought? So there are only two actors here, Mm -hmm. but there are like several subjects, like the action is split among several subjects. Uh, Right. Or maybe there are only two subjects here, but there are several actors. Is that maybe the better way to put it? Yeah, or maybe even subject positions, uh, because spatiality is really important in this poem. Who's who's on top, who's on bottom, and what is their orientation? Mm-hmm. Right. So what he's saying here is, you know, why why have I undergone this tempest, whatever whatever that was, whatever kind of um, harrowing experience he's he's been through? I've undergone it so that the chaff in me, whatever, whatever is extraneous might be blown away. And what is left behind is my grain, the thing that really matters. Um, the, and it's left sheer and clear. So it, it, it now, you know, is, uh, it's visible. And so in all of that toil, all of that tribulation before here now has lays exposed, like who I really am and and that's an occasion for joy right. and for cheer and then he's like but wait who's <laughs> it who is it supposed to cheer uh like what's left to who is left to cheer am i supposed to to cheer on the the violent hero who's done this to me who's brutalized me or am i supposed to cheer the me that fought against him you know, it, like maybe, maybe this isn't an occasion for cheer, or maybe I'm actually supposed to be cheering on each one. And if so, like, then I'm cheering on the me who resisted him. Right. Yeah. There's something. There's something very much like the Psalms in this poem, where the the subject or the actors you were speaking of, or that it shifts, and so it's hard to know sometimes where you are in the poem. And one thing that we often rely upon, I think, is a clear sense of self, who we are in any given moment of time. But what this poem does really dramatically is it says that that knowledge isn't always straightforward. And it doesn't always come down to us to determine who we are. And it also points to this really uncomfortable, and since God is mentioned in the last line of this poem, this uncomfortable relationship, why is it that I bind myself to that which hurts me? What is it about me or about this being that I'm serving that is both a hero and awesome and fascinating and terrifying and powerful and overwhelms me in a way that at times can be a source of joy, but at times can be a source of violent abjection? And I mean, if we, if I'm understanding the last line or so correctly, He's not speaking from, he's not writing this poem from within that time of trauma. Uh, he's talking about it as a time past that night, that like dark night of the soul, that year of now done darkness when I lay 
wrestling with my God. This is another time that he's talking about. And yet, you know, the way that he's, <laughs> that he's writing this poem and, and identifying himself with the poem, he's, he's going back to it. He's re-experiencing it. And it's belated, but yeah, so I guess, I guess what's, uh, what's standing out to me here is not just that, like, we have poetry as a belated response to trauma because we're working things out, but that, but that the poetry of trauma, actually, if we, if we actually didn't write it, you know, we could just maybe move on or something like that. But in, in writing it and engaging with it, we're actually kind of binding ourselves to that time again. And why? Why? Why would we do that? Well, I think it comes back to this idea of witnessing. There is something powerful and agential in being able to go back and look at that thing that traumatized you and speak back to it, even if it requires that kind of reliving. This poem isn't whatever happened to Gerard Manley Hawkins. It's a poem, but he put it in a form in which you could look at it and engage in it. And that's, for me, that's what lyric poetry does. It distends time. He's talking about something that's now past and done and, and over with that he is bringing into his present, this kind of extended continuous present of the moment of the poem, but that is also shuttling between a vision of the past and a vision of the future. Time is like a spiral here that we too are participating in. And I think that's why we go back and write it or paint it or make a movie about it because it gives us another language, even if it's a visual language, maybe especially if it's a visual language, uh, to confront and to witness to the trauma. Yes. Okay. So this is really helpful for me because one of the things that, you know, I was, as I was thinking about the dance of death and thinking about how, you know, any response to trauma always comes too late. You know, what is the actual consolation? I was thinking like, okay, so we're in this very difficult time right now. We're not going to be able to write the poetry of the coronavirus until the coronavirus is passed. So what's the point of actually, you know, thinking about the poetry right now? And, and what you've just said makes me realize that you, you talked about like how you said spiral. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> what, what did you say about spiral? Yeah, the spiral of time. I mean, I think that that's pretty clear, Ryan, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah. No, exactly. The sp- the, so the spiral of time means that, that time is not a circle. It's not cyclical. We're not just repeating ourselves over and over again. But we are passing over similar territory with a difference. And, and in this case in particular, like with the dance of death, we are passing over another time of pestilence. And so part of the reason that we make art in the aftermath of trauma, I mean, there is a therapeutic aspect to that, as you've just expressed. But I think a lot part of the reason is that we make it because we know that in the future, we ourselves or other people will be in times of trauma again. And this is a place where we can meet across history, across different times, and we can actually inhabit that same space. And by inhabiting the space of a poem like Carrion Comfort, we're not only re-experiencing that trauma, but we also get to kind of proleptically, like in advance, experience a bit of the comfort, the hard-won comfort that Hopkins is achieving at the end of this poem, that Levis is achieving. Um, right, right. 
And if I might try to draw that all together with a term and an idea and a practice that I've spent a lot of time studying and writing about, we're trying to translate experience. You know, Lidgett, he translated from the French and that's how that poem begins, right? With a, a note from the translator. And as I'm sure you know, translation, one of its earliest meanings was moving a dead body from one grave to another. And then it became something that we did with language too. So it's always had this material bodily connection as well as the, the linguistic, the language connection. And we're trying to translate our experiences, but we're also throwing that line out to whoever needs it in a way that they can read it and understand and, and meet one another, as you so nicely put it. So as a Catholic Christian, I believe in the communion of the saints. I believe that we are, that we are in touch with and inhabit uh, the you know, we we kind of share and overlap with the the living, those who, those those souls who are living on, and so that underwrites a very rich theology of prayer. Like we have a lot that we can, we have this sense that you know prayer is powerful and it's partly powerful because not only do we have all of our living friends and family and and congregation praying with us and for us, but we also have the saints um, who are praying with us and for us. Something similar is going on here in the way that you're describing what poetry allows. Yeah, I mean, there's there's been a, a lot of writing about poetry and prayer, and a lot of people use the idea of attention as the link between those two things, that both poetry and prayer require a kind of attentiveness that is mostly silent and that yields a form at the end of that silence. But I would add on to that to say that if there is a link between poetry and prayer, that it also has something to do with memory and imagination. Of course, that seems obvious, but that imaginative gesture toward the future we don't always recognize things when they happen to us. We can't always make sense of them. And that's true in traumatic moments. And that's true in moments that are ordinary. We don't always see things clearly. We see things as they pass by. There's a line in the Liebes poem that we didn't discuss, something that disappears. Things are always disappearing, but we believe that they're there nonetheless. And so we can use something like poetry and prayer, I think, to bring back to remember all of those things that passed and hope for a time when we really are remembered in love. That's consoling, I think. I hope so. It consoles me. I think about my grandparents at this time. I still have my one grandma who are trying really hard to keep safe right now. But I, I think about my paternal grandparents and my maternal grandfather that I have to see them again. Yeah. That's my hope. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you, Elise. Thank you. This is a good place to to wrap up. I'm glad for this time because we are, I think a lot of people are being more deliberate about conversations like this and we wouldn't have had this conversation otherwise. I know. I'm grateful for it. That is a real silver lining. Thank you. All right. Well, it's good to see you. Good to talk. And I look forward to seeing you in person sooner, hopefully, rather than later. I know. I I really hope so. Let's get a beer sometime soon. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) sounds good. Okay. (laughs) Okay, bye. Bye, Ryan. Thanks for listening. If you appreciated this episode, please rate and review us on your podcast platform of choice. We love to hear from listeners. 
chat with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. You can also learn more about our programming at beatriceinstitute.org. That's beatriceinstitute, all one word, dot org. And if you are a university student or faculty member in Pittsburgh and would like to be involved locally, check out our fellows program and get in touch. This episode was mixed and mastered by Yellow Music and Sound. Until next time, I'm Ryan McDermott. Go with God. Go with God.